0: All right, we are back. We were talking about uh, woke culture. There was an article in the Economist titled "The Threat from the Illiberal Left," and an article in the Atlantic by Ann Applebaum titled "The New Puritans." I think Ms. Applebaum uh, spoke with Bill Maher on his program about about this subject. We could probably talk a few more minutes about it, but I want to take a detour into some other stuff. I mentioned uh, in our last segment a local publication talking about a Latinx festival. I'm sort of been impressed by. What is turning up in your basic uh, uh, local, independent newspaper or magazine? For many years, we had a very good relationship with the Sacramento News and Review. I hope hope we still do, even though we're not interacting with them like we used to, mainly because we have physically relocated. At any rate, there's a paper in the Bay Area which has attracted my interest, and we may wish to go speak with its editor in the future. He's got opinion pieces like, How Local Government Works, and and does do quite a bit of important coverage. It's called the Tri-City Voice. It serves the area around Fremont, Newark, and Union City. And their piece about how local government works, I, I think, might be a little idealistic. One of the sections I noticed in one of the local editions had a, had a piece titled, Get to Know Your City Council via Story Map. described how in the city of Fremont, they'd put a story map out, which was interactive and user-friendly. It said it was, dedic- it was developed by the city's information technology team features a short biography on the mayor, and each city councilman shares what district they serve and provides contact information. And apparently, it also reveals who it is is financially supporting them and who expects them to vote in their favor. That last part I'm just uh, embellishing with a bit. I remember so many years ago, Professor Bunker Hill used to write for the Chronicle. We're going way back, I think, to probably like the 70s, maybe the 60s. He proposed that um, congressmen should show up like NASCAR drivers with patches on them showing who it was that was supporting them, like Exxon or AT&T, maybe now Palantir. Anyway, I got like a lot of papers, it has things like news and notes from around the world, little whimsical pieces, in addition to having, like, the police blotter. An item that was supposedly submitted by the Association of Mature American Citizens, of which I know nothing, but under the title Odd Strange World, the piece notes that congratulations should go to the proud winners of... A Nobel Prize. Well, the, actually, the Ig Nobel Prize, something we've talked about in this show many times. We had a long uh, talk with an Ig Nobel Prize award winner, Ivan Schwab, whose article on why it was, Woodpeckers didn't get headaches, earned him an Ig Nobel. Anyway, they note that this year's honorees of the Ig Nobel Award include researchers from Spain and Iran. For their study of the germs found in chewing gum scraped from streets and sidewalks in different countries. They won the Ecology Prize. The winner of the Economics Prize, Dr. Pavlo Blavitsky, did a study suggesting you can measure the corruption in a country by how fat its politicians are. Sounds like an area of legitimate study to us. And then there's the Transportation Prize that went to a multinational team which sought to determine whether it's safer to airlift a rhinoceros upside down or right-side up. And no, we have no idea why it would ever occur to anyone to ship a rhinoceros upside down. Because it I, might be safer. Horns farther away. Well, I guess so. Anyway, the police blotter section of the Tri-City Voice was, was actually pretty, pretty mundane, but... Not so with another local paper we ran into some months ago, the Estero Bay News, described as your community news down in the area near Morro Bay, slash Cambria, slash Cayucos. Their police blotter of the Morro Bay (laughs) police logs, I think, really warrants some extensive quotations. Now, we do want to add that Radio Parallax is not responsible for any of the adjectives that were used in this police blotter descriptions. Anyway, entries for June. June 20th, police arrested a 31-year-old mulish man for violation of a domestic violence restraining order. June 18th, police stopped a suspicious vehicle at 1.16 p.m. A 53-year-old saucy lady was nabbed for suspicion of driving on the sauce. June 18th, police responded to a 2.37 p.m. to a disturbing fellow scaring the straits in the 500 block of Quintana. A 40-year-old suffered intoxicat fornication and slept it off in the Huskow. June 17th, police responded at 8.23 p.m. to a Rite Aid where some squeaky wheel was well-oiled. He was put out of our misery in the lockup. June 16th, police recovered a stolen vehicle on the 400 block of Atascadero Road and arrested a 47-year-old man for suspicion of auto theft and possession of paraphernalia, plus a few other charges the logs didn't mention. June 15th, Mechanics Bank of the 200 block of Harbor reported getting two fraudulent checks totaling $689, which won't exactly break the bank. June 14th, police contacted a yo-yo offender at 5.52 p.m. in the 300 block of Quintana, who had eight bench warrants. Make that nine. June 12th, police contacted a walking dude at 11.50 p.m. at the Radcliffe and Little Morrow Creek Road. The 48-year-old fellow was cited for alleged possession of a hookup pipe. His stash, no doubt, gone up in smoke. June 12. Police contacted a suspicious woman at 4:30 p.m. at the 500 block of Piney Way. Logs indicated the 28-year-old woman was arrested for suspicion of committing a residential burglary at that same address, as her getaway scheme apparently needs work. June 11. Police contacted a suspicious woman at 9:35 p.m. at an undisclosed location. The 40-year-old Swizzle Stick was arrested for suspicion of being under the influence and of course resisting arrest. She crashed at the Iron Bar Hotel. Now, since we uh, last convened, dear listener, some interesting things have taken place on the COVID front. First and foremost, from my personal point of view, is the fact that I was visiting a neighbor who had had COVID last December and who received two shots since then, both of Pfizer. I myself had COVID last December and had received two shots, in my case, Moderna. She wasn't feeling well a couple of days later. I went to the ER with some breathing issues and they tested her for COVID. And guess what? She was positive. Now, was this a false positive test? I don't know. They didn't do any follow-up on it. But she does have some health issues and did get Pfizer. And it seems clear at this point that Pfizer does not seem to give you the lasting immunity that Moderna does. At least preliminary indications go along those lines, which I guess is why Pfizer has now been uh, authorized for yet another booster dose. I never developed symptoms and did a subsequent test five days later and turned up negative. But this does show you that, um, well say, for example, you have a vaccination that's 92% or 95% effective. Sounds pretty good. And it is pretty good. But that means that 5 to 8% of the time, it's not effective. And no, don't have any idea whether this turned out to be the Delta variant. And uh, we do want to point out our affiliation with TrumpPandemic.net. That website has, uh, well, we know for a fact it's, it's, it's lapsed in the last several months. And that's because we were the ones that should be maintaining it. Nevertheless, a lot of good information on there about what has gone down in this pandemic since the beginning of it. Here's a stat from the New York Times that summarizes a lot of this pretty well. In counties where Donald Trump won at least 70% of the vote in 2020, COVID has killed about 47 out of every 100,000 people. That's since the end of June. In the counties where Trump won less than 32% of the vote, the COVID death rate has been about 10 out of 100,000. That's according to the New York Times. We pointed out in this program that countries that are doing extremely well, courtesy of isolation, places like Australia and New Zealand, can't keep it up forever, and the disease is not going to disappear, no matter what Donald Trump claimed in March of 2020. So they're starting to get a little bit antsy down in Australia. Um, the country has had fewer than 1,200 deaths due to coronavirus, but they've been locked up for 18 months. The Australian Sun notes that more than half the country is still closed tight, and the states that are open won't let anybody in for fear of seeding an outbreak. This cannot go on forever, according to the Australian. The state of Victoria, where the state capital Melbourne is located, uh, now has has now set an, an unenviable record of being under quarantine for two hundred and sixty-seven days. That's that's if they end the restrictions on October twenty-sixth, as planned. But even at that point, Melbourneers won't be able to eat inside of a restaurant or drink at a bar or go to movies or send their kids back to school full-time. This really does return to that argument of like, you know, how strenuous must you be in a lockdown? And no, we don't have any simple answers. I don't think we reported on data from an Axios poll in August of this year, but it did note that 79% of vaccinated Americans blame the unvaccinated for rising cases of the Delta variant. Well, hello... 36 percent, I presume this is also a vaccinated Americans think former President Trump is to blame. 33 percent point to Fox News and conservative media. Among the unvaccinated, 37 percent blame people traveling to the U.S. from abroad. 27 percent blame the mainstream media. Sure, they're to, yeah, it's their fault. And 21 percent, <laughs> predictably, say it's President Biden's fault. Another contributor, Radio Parallax, wrote me a week or so ago and asked me to review a video, which he sent me, of a doctor who is a Fox News contributor, talking about what you should do at this point. What's what's the best strategy? What, what, What society should be doing? He downplayed the use of masks and testing and quarantine and social isolation as needed and suggested that the main thing we need to do now is to treat, treat COVID with effective medications, of which, according to him, there were many. He started up by citing monoclonal antibodies as something that were effective, and, and on that, it's pretty hard to disagree. That's what they gave Donald Trump when he showed up at Walter Reed. It might have saved his life, for better or worse. But he went on to explain how it was that hydroxychloroquine, if given early, not, not to hospitalize patients, he said, but people who are immediately coming down with symptoms, if you can test them and get them on hydroxychloroquine, get them on ivermectin, and colchicine, a gout drug, was also useful, you can, you can really nip this thing in the bud. He was saying, this is the most important thing we can do. Now, there's an old saying, which I think everybody's familiar with, which notes that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, which, which is God's truth, meaning that if you can use basic epidemiologic methods, you know, masks, isolation, quarantine as needed, keep on it with testing, that's more important than treating people. And the, the idea that, you know, it was skipped over in his discussion was the fact that the people that are getting sick now are the unvaccinated not universally, of course, but for the most part. And yet, thanks to Fox News... Actually, it was really funny. I I called up a a doctor, pal of mine, and asked him about um, what he knew about this notion that, that the treatments were actually effective and that that's what we should be doing. His comment immediately was, well, I guess if you're watching Fox News... He noted that he attended an in-service that talked about how if you mix hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, you can, it's, it's, a great, it's a great combination for inducing renal failure in people, which, let's face it, is probably not what you want to do. Meanwhile, down in Florida, uh, the nutty Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, has been pushing Regeneron's monoclonal antibody drug cocktail as the solution to their Delta variant woes. This is the guy that's trying to prevent anybody from implementing local restrictions on people's freedom to go around, you know, without a mask. He thinks that's what you should be able to do. But apparently after you give everybody, you know, the Delta variant from your um, lack of restrictions, all you got to do is just treat it. You just treat it then. That's, you know, that's the way to deal with it. Writing about this in CNN.com, Jen Christensen said that Regeneron's treatment of monoclonal antibodies is not a replacement for the vaccine. Monoclonal antibodies can speed up the body's ability to fight infection by mimicking an immune response, but the treatment must come early in the disease and requires an infusion, which is why scientists warn against promoting cures rather than emphasizing easier prevention methods. Writing about this fiasco in the Palm Beach Post, Frank Cerabino said, the governor keeps evolving into an even more harmful variant of himself. More than 95% of Floridians who are hospitalized or dying from COVID-19 failed to get vaccinated. Yet DeSantis knows he scores political points with the right with his strategy to coddle and validate the herd stupidity of Floridians who mock masks and shun vaccines. And it seems hard to answer the question at at present of, of how much protection the vaccines provide against the Delta variant. But from what I can see in The Economist, was taking a look at this very issue, they said that... Um, the Delta coronavirus variant versus the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines appear to be about 15% less effective against the Delta than the Alpha variant, which frankly is not a very useful statistic as far as I can see, but I'm pretty confident we'll have good numbers um, you know, as we go along. Last year, the BBC weighed in on, uh, on how it was people had a, some people had a hidden immunity, apparently against COVID-19. The BBC suggested that our T cells, those things that um, go haywire when you get HIV, that our T cells were specifically tailored in some people's cases to detect proteins on the surface of COVID-19. In other words, some people had a pre-existing degree of resistance against the virus before COVID-19 ever showed up. How can that be? Well, the speculation in the piece is that you know the the cold viruses that are caused by coronavirus. The suggestion is that the colds people get from coronaviruses, and, and coronaviruses cause about 15% of colds, might be the answer. Some of the findings that the article cited came from research done back in 2011 about the SARS virus, which of course was also a coronavirus, when they realized that the SARS virus was inducing T-cell resistance in, in mice. They decided to go back and look at some old blood samples from people between 2015 and 2018 to see if they would contain any that would recognize COVID-19. And that indeed was the case, suggesting, quote, that their immune systems learned to recognize it after encountering cold viruses with similar surface proteins in the past. We still have so much to learn. And I think I need to say a word or two more about General Mark Miley. There's a new book out, Peril, by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, about the final weeks of Donald Trump's presidency, in which they report that Miley became deeply concerned that Trump was unraveling and might, in a fit of madness or wag the dog desperation to stay in power, launch a nuclear attack against China. Miley contacted General Li Zucheng, his counterpart in the Chinese military, to reassure him that there was no attack planned and to promise he'd call back if an attack was imminent. This, this is remarkable stuff. This is Dr. Strangelove kind of stuff. Miley also made senior U.S. military officials in the nuclear chain of command, which he was not, to swear an oath to consult with him first if Trump ordered such a launch. Now, predictably, the New York Post, you know, part of Rupert Murdoch's empire, launched an attack on Miley saying he's guilty of colluding with a foreign power against the sitting commander-in-chief. That's treason. On the other hand, with a little more sanity, uh, Greg Zoroya and USA Today say Miley deserves a medal. At the time, the four-star general called Li, Beijing was deeply alarmed by Trump's escalating rhetoric about China and by the January 6th insurrection. Peril reports Chinese intelligence was warning that Trump might attack. With the full knowledge of then-Defense Secretary Mark Esper, Miley reached out to Li with reassurances that may have saved American lives by thwarting a deadly Chinese miscalculation. Can anyone blame the Chinese for worrying that the increasingly deranged Trump asked the LA Times? Can anyone blame the Chinese for worrying what the increasingly deranged Trump might do? The first U.S. president to refuse to abide by the peaceful transfer of power making it clear he was capable of anything. And Bloomberg.com, a business-oriented publication, had Timothy O'Brien saying, I'm glad Miley took the steps he did. His actions only show how dangerous it was for an unstable narcissist like Donald Trump to control the nuclear button. Something was deeply wrong when we have to rely on military leaders going rogue to protect us from rogue presidents. And I think I'm going to leave it there. You know, in some, in some disturbing news from Africa, it turns out that Paul Rusabagina, the inspiration for Don Cheadle's. 2004 movie Hotel Rwanda, was sentenced this past week to 25 years in prison for supporting terrorism. Rusabinga, who's an ethnic Hutu, was the manager of a hotel that sheltered more than 1,200 ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus during the 1994 Rwanda genocide. He won political asylum in Belgium and became a fierce critic of Rwanda's increasingly authoritarian President Paul Kagame. Unfortunately, Rusabinga was tricked into returning to Rwanda last year when he boarded a charter jet, was falsely told he was flying to Burundi. He was arrested when it landed in Kigali. You know, I set aside a whole pile of papers that were devoted to good news, (laughs) apparently on this show and the last one. Well, I just haven't gotten to that pile. But here is one item from it. It turns out that if you walk 7,000 steps, and yes, we mocked on this program people that bought Fitbit devices that tallied up whether they got Ten thousand steps or not, there's nothing magical about ten thousand steps. But it turns out if you do walk a bunch of steps, you you do benefit. Surprise, surprise! Imagine that exercise is beneficial. Anyway, if someone got around to testing this out, see how many steps you take, and researchers found that people who logged at least seven thousand steps a day had a fifty to seventy percent lower risk of premature death than those who took fewer than that. Apparently, the greatest reduction in mortality came between 7,000 and 10,000 steps, if you're keeping track, after which the benefits leveled off. All right, we're going to defer on the good news items and instead do obituaries, which Mr. Millen likes to point out sometimes do constitute good news. So we note the passing of French movie actor Jean-Paul Belmondo. He was the face of French new wave cinema back in the 1960s with a cigarette perpetually parked in his mouth an air of rugged insouciance and rubbery features that he once described as ugly. He rocketed to fame, playing a flippant amoral gangster in Jean-Luc Goddard's seminal 1960 film Breathless, and went on to play a series of alienated anti-heroes who epitomize Gallic Cool. That film's success made him not just a French star, but an international one, said the Times in the UK. Said Belmondo, one minute I was reading Cinnamond and drooling over pictures of Gina Lola, Brigida, Sophia Loren, and Bridget Bardot. Then, suddenly, I was holding them in my arms. I'd say nice work if you can get it. And we also note, sadly, the passing of Don Everly, one half of, with his brother Phil, the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers were among the most prolific hit makers of the early rock and roll era, issuing a stream of singles that blended country, pop, and rhythm and blues. Between 1957 and 1962, they had 15 top 10 hits, including Bye Bye Love, Wake Up Little Susie, and All I Have to Do Is Dream. The Beatles cited the siblings as a crucial influence, as did Simon and Garfunkel. I'm pleased to say that when I saw Simon and Garfunkel in Oakland, I don't know, about 15 years ago, their opening act was the Everly Brothers, and they were pretty damn good. And Bye Bye Love, man, it's a classic. Lastly, we have Norm MacDonald, who made quite a name for himself on Saturday Night Live. I was unaware of the fact that Norm MacDonald got fired from SNL thanks to the fact that NBC Entertainment's West Coast President Don Olenmeyer wanted him gone because he was a friend of O.J. Simpson, and Norm MacDonald just would not let up on going after the murderous O.J., Speaking for Saturday Night Live, executive producer Lorne Michaels said McDonald was one of the most impactful comedic voices of any generation. But sadly, McDonald was fired in the middle of the 1998 season by NBC Entertainment, Don Olmeyer, who didn't appreciate Simpsons being the near-constant butt of jokes. Now, you can go on the internet and find a 30-minute compendium of Norm McDonald's weekend update slams of O.J. and the trial that riveted America. Luckily for Norm, he was uh, apparently still able to make it as a stand up comedian and was was widely uh, respected by fellow stand ups. I have to say, his impressions of uh, of Burt Reynolds as a gum chomping (laughs) contestant on Celebrity Jeopardy is pretty funny. He also did Larry King, David Letterman, and Bob Dole. But I think we should close today's show, perhaps, with uh, some of his finest attacks on OJ Simpson, that which got him uh, fired. Because I think you have to admire a guy who's so outraged by the whole travesty that was the O.J. Simpson case that he risked his career to, uh, to make appropriate fun of that uh, circus. So, Mr. Merlin, why don't we do about five or six selections, shall we?
1: Sure. In his book, O.J. Simpson says that he would have taken a bullet or stood in front of a train for Nicole. Man, I'm going to tell you, that is some bad luck when the one guy who would have died for you kills you. That's kind it. It was revealed this week that defense lawyer Johnny Cochran once abused his first wife. In his defense, Cochran said, hey, at least I didn't kill her like some people I know. OJ's pal Al Cowlings now has a 1-900 number. For $2.99 a minute, Cowlings will tell callers that OJ is innocent. And for $3.99 a minute, he'll try to do it without laughing. (laughs) To illustrate the point that their client is running out of money to defend himself, O.J. Simpson's lawyer said this week that if he had to do it over again, after killing his victims, O.J. would now rob them as well. (laughs) That one you find troubling? We went... Was O.J. Simpson high on speed the night of the murders? Absolutely not, said defense attorney Johnny Cochran today, and a simple test of any of O.J.'s blood found at the crime scene will prove it. (laughs) This week at the O.J. Simpson trial, the infamous bloody glove was finally introduced into evidence, and O.J. didn't help his case any by blurting out, there it is, I've been looking all over for that thing. (laughs) in a surprise move oj simpson has offered to give an interview to cnn with quote absolutely no ground rules but interviewers greta van sustern and roger cossack have asked for one don't kill us (laughs) in sworn testimony this week paula barbieri admitted that she had broken up with oj simpson the very night nicole brown simpson was killed boy that had to be a tough day for oj first he gets dumped by his girlfriend then colombian hitmen kill his wife <laughs> Man, that's... in a civil court deposition this week oj simpson denied under oath that he ever punched kicked or slapped his ex-wife nicole oh great as if oj isn't busy enough tracking down the real killers now he's got to track down the real wife beater too it's... <laughs> And in Brentwood, O.J. himself was spotted manning a lemonade stand with his daughter, Sydney. Asked by reporters why sales were so poor, O.J. replied, Beats me, and then he went back to cutting lemons with a giant knife. (laughs) A new development in the O.J. Simpson civil trial this week. According to sworn testimony, Nicole Brown Simpson had told her therapist that she was afraid of getting beaten by O.J. Simpson. Asked why he didn't report this earlier. The therapist said, I was afraid of getting beaten by O.J. Simpson.
0: (laughs) I think that about does it for today's program. We want to thank you for tuning in, which requires you to check on the web every so often to see if we're around. We're no longer being brought to you on KDVS or KZFR in Chico, but there is some hope that we might be restored there one day. We certainly want to go to bat for KDVS, what is being done to them by the UC Davis administration, which we don't have time to talk about today. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. It is Radio Parallax. I am allegedly Douglas Everett, and we'll see you soon.